We are going to continue our study of the book of Esther tonight. So if you have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, turn to Esther chapter 3. And my goal is to cover Esther chapters 3 and 4. Uh, here's the way the rest of the quarter is going to look. We're going to continue uh, our study of Esther into next week. We've had our singing night this quarter already, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So we'll have class the last Wednesday of the quarter. And I'm teaching in here next quarter as well. So I'm going to take that opportunity to cheat a little and carry Esther out into the first Wednesday of the next quarter before we start our new study. Uh, so because there's not another class going on, I don't think that'll inconvenience anybody, unless you're teaching on Wednesday nights next quarter. And I know that uh, you'll be very disappointed to miss that last class. So it's online. You can check it out. But uh, we, we are going to finish the book of Esther. And I feel pretty good about, you know, three books in one quarter almost. Uh, that's not too shabby. Uh, we've been moving at a pretty quick pace. But my goal has been to pick up on the theme of restoration and watching how God restored his people to the holy city of Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. The last step of this is the restoration of honor, which was Esther and Mordecai's role. Last week, we introduced all the principal characters except for the villain of honor. So tonight we get to him, Haman, the villain of honor. And we'll talk about him and how his role is. But first, I want to talk a little bit about story and how good a story the book of Esther really is. This pertains to tonight's lesson. Um, a few years back, I started a new hobby of writing fiction, and I had to kind of look at story structure, and I learned a few things about how a basic story, if it's a good story, is told. And here's one of the things I looked at, um, something Sean Coyne calls the Five Commandments of Storytelling. Every story, if it's a good story, begins with an inciting incident. There's something that turns the principal character's world upside down. It just mixes things up and makes them try to reset the equilibrium. That's the inciting incident. It's the first big thing that starts the story. Then there are progressive complications. There has to be tension and conflict as the protagonist tries to... Uh, you know, reset things and get things back to the way they were in the beginning. Uh, obstacles keep falling in his path. That's the progressive complications. Finally, there comes a crisis moment, okay? The big question, a big choice that has to be made. And usually, if it's a good story, the choice is going to be very difficult. It's not going to be an easy choice between right and wrong. It's going to be, you know, the best bad choice. Two bad choices pick the lesser of two evils. And when the character chooses, that's the climax of the story. That's where, you know, everything changes and the character has transformed into a different person. And uh, then everything falls into place and that's called the resolution. So if it's a good story, it's going to follow somewhat these five commandments. And uh, you can pay attention to your favorite stories or fairy tales or look at stories in the Bible and you can see them following this arc. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, your kids might be telling you something that happened at school and you start phasing out on them. It's probably because they're not following the structure, you know. It's, you'll ask, what's the point? And 
That's because it doesn't have the structure. Now look at Esther. Esther begins with an inciting incident. This young woman is chosen to be queen over Persia, the biggest empire in the world. And as she gets into that position, all these complications start to come up. And we'll start studying those complications tonight with Haman. Haman's upset because Mordecai won't bow down to him. Haman plots to kill the Jews and so on. And there comes a crisis point. And the crisis point is when Mordecai says, Esther, you've got to step in and do it. Well, Esther, you know, has two bad choices. Do I risk my life for my people when I've been in hiding and nobody knows that I'm a Jew and maybe get killed? Or do I sit by and do nothing and watch my entire nation be exterminated by this awful man, Haman? So you see, she's got a tough choice to make. And uh, then it comes to the climax. That's where she chooses to step in for her people. And you remember she said, and I hope we get to this point in tonight's class, if I perish, I perish. That's the climax point. And then the rest of it is resolution. As uh, we see the events fall into place and the new normal take over in Persia and with the Jewish people. Uh, another way of looking at stories is through the arc of you could say good times and bad times, good things and bad things. Uh, on this chart, this is uh, good fortune and bad fortune. And uh, this is uh, the charts drawn by Kurt Vonnegut when he was teaching storytelling. So I, I, I thought this was interesting as pertains to Esther. This is the typical plot line of boy meets girl. You know, the boy starts out, things are going well, somebody breaks up with him or Something bad happens in his life. Everything starts going downhill till he meets the special somebody and everything starts going up and the story ends on a high like that. Here's Cinderella. Uh, you know, she starts out low. Uh, the story begins really bad. She has these awful stepsisters. But gradually, things get better. Fairy godmother visits her. She gets a chance to go to the ball. She meets a prince. He's impressed with her, she's impressed with him, but what happens? The clock strikes midnight, right? And that's where the line just sinks down. She has to get out of there, but she leaves the glass slipper, there's a little hope, and then uh, he drew the line all the way up and put the infinity sign for ultimate happiness. You know, she's just happy, happier, what did they say? Happy ever after. That's Cinderella. I don't know if you know Kafka, but here's Kafka. I thought Vonnegut was funny on this one. He's Starts low, he wakes up like uh, the story, Metamorphosis. The guy wakes up in bed as a cockroach, and it just goes down from there. <laughs> down infinity. So you, if you don't know Kafka, you don't understand what I just meant. But I was getting around to this one. This is, to me, I think, Esther's story arc. It's uh, the man in the hole situation. Uh, things start out pretty good. She's queen of Persia. Then somebody's going to kill her people. I would say that is bad fortune, so the line sinks down. She's like the guy that falls in the hole. She's got to figure out how to climb out of the hole. Mordecai helps her. She climbs out of the hole. ends on a high note. So this basic plot line is, is what you see in Esther. And again, I'm just showing you what a great story this is, just on its surface. Structurally speaking, it's, it's just a great tale to, 
to tell. And the Jews still celebrate it every year in the Feast of Purim. We'll learn where that word comes from in tonight's lesson, where they have plays and they reenact the whole story. Because it's such an interesting story with such interesting characters. And Haman may be the most interesting character of them all. He's the antagonist, the villain that uh, sparks outrage in the story. So let's talk about Haman as we're introduced to him in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read the first few verses here. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all of the officials who were with him. So he's called an Agagite, which we don't really understand what that means. There are two possibilities. It could mean he was from this obscure place called Agag, or it could mean he was a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites. If you were here last Sunday, we talked a little bit about how King Saul was supposed to utterly destroy the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, but he saved the best of the livestock in King Agag, and uh, the Lord rebuked Saul and punished him for not fully obeying him and leaving the Amalekites because they were to be utterly destroyed. If Haman was a descendant of Agag, this is a very interesting development as we see Saul's disobedience come back to bite Israel. Uh, he didn't fully destroy the Amalekites, and here's a descendant who's trying to wipe out the entire race. Did God know back then that Haman would come as a result of the Amalekite nation? We don't know, and we don't even know for sure if that's what is meant by the term Agagite, but it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. The more important piece of information here in verse 1 is that he was promoted above all the officials who were with him. So he, he got a position we might call prime minister. And he's second in importance to Ahasuerus over the Persian Empire. Very important man, very powerful person, which is why he can do what we see him do later on in the story of Esther. Verse 2, All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. That's probably why he wouldn't do it. Jewish people believe that you worship only the true and living God that no man was worthy of worship. Only God was worthy of worship. And Mordecai was different from everybody else. Evidently, there weren't a whole lot of Jews in his position or in Esther's position, which is why he warned her to keep it a secret. So just picture Haman coming by, everyone falling down on their faces before him, worshiping him, and Haman just enjoying this, loving this, and then here's this one Jewish man, Mordecai, standing there with his arms crossed, watching him go by. He's not hurling insults at him. He's not being rude or disrespectful. You remember, Mordecai is an official in his own right. He sat at the gate. Um, but he's not going to worship a man the way he worships God, because he's a person of faith. 
and he's bold and courageous, and he did what the others wouldn't dare to do. So this really got Haman upset, and he complained to Ahasuerus and um, made some plots that, that we'll get to in just a moment. He just um, was this insecure little person, is what he was. Let's get to the plot. Look at uh, Esther chapter 3, verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. What's going on here? Well, first of all, as I said, the Jews celebrate this story in the Feast of Purim, which is a feast you don't read about in the Law of Moses because it came so late in the, in the story of Israel, in the history of Israel. Remember last week I, I told you that Esther is the last book in the history of Israel. So we're at the end of the timeline here, even though this is just the 17th book of the Old Testament. All the other books backtrack, except for maybe Malachi. The rest of them backtrack and overlap with the books of history that have gone before Esther. So you're not going to find Purim in the Law of Moses in the first five books where all the other feasts are. Purim and, and Hanukkah uh, were later additions to the feast calendar, okay? But it's based on this Persian word, pur. I'm not even sure I'm saying it correctly, P-U-R, that you see there in verse 7, which seems to relate to lots that were being cast by these these officials, these advisors, these soothsayers, we're not really sure what these men are. Now, we believe that the principal religion that Ahasuerus respected in those days was called Zoroastrianism. And Zoroastrianism had priests called Magi. Now, we've all heard of the Magi, right? But not from the book of Esther. Where have you heard of the Magi? In the birth story of Christ, right? Matthew chapter 2, they come to... Herod the Great, these Magi, men from the east, well, Persia was in the east, and they say, where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? And Herod's afraid, and he tries to conspire with them to tell him where Jesus would be born, and they go the other way, and you, you know the whole story, you know the legends that are surrounding the story, right? This time of the year we hear about uh, different versions of the wise men, the Magi, uh, around Christmas time. Well, these were probably Magi, Zoroastrian priests who paid a lot of attention to astrology. And uh, here you see them trying to make decisions by casting lots, or pur, P-U-R, is what they called them. We don't know for sure what these were, but archaeologists have discovered a four-sided die uh, that uh, had numbers on it, and it could be something like that, that they cast and looking for an answer, very simple, like yes or no. It looks like maybe they're going through a Persian calendar, and uh, as they go from day to day, they cast a lot looking for a yes answer, or a combination of symbols that would tell them an affirmative answer, and they don't get that until they get to month number 12. And so that that's becomes very important, and we'll explain why in a moment. But when they get to that month, that's what Haman's looking for, 
The reason he goes to these lengths is probably so he can go to the king, who seems very superstitious, and tell him he has a divine mandate for his plan. His plan is to issue an edict to exterminate the Jews. Now here's what uh, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 say. This is Haman's scheme. There is a certain people, Haman says, scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charged the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Now, one thing that's missing from this speech or this uh, scheme that he has is the name of the people he wants to destroy. Isn't that interesting? If we have everything that transpired between Haman and Ahasuerus here before us, then Ahasuerus allowed Haman to make this edict with his signet ring without first learning the identity of the people he's wanting to destroy. He just says they're different from us. And he makes this false charge that they don't follow the king's laws. And that's all he says. That's all the information Ahasuerus has. And I guess he puts that much trust in Haman and that much trust in the purr, the lots that were cast, that that was all that he needed to commit genocide. So again, Ahasuerus, who is historically linked with Xerxes, is not looking like a very nice person, right? He's not looking very sharp. Now, there does seem to be a motive here beyond superstition and religion. Did you catch that? What could be another motive that the king had for going along with Haman's idea? The silver, that's right. He, uh, Haman's obviously wealthy, and he offered 10,000 talents of silver. Now, I don't know how much money that is in today's figures, but I'll tell you this. A talent is a weight measurement of 75 pounds. So 75 times 10,000 is 750,000 pounds of silver. However much that is, that's a very valuable offer that Haman is making to a materialistic man. So Ahasuerus, it got, his, it got his attention. Now, in verse 11, Ahasuerus says, keep the money and dispose of the people. He says that, but all indications are that he wanted the money. Because later on in chapter 4, verse 7, Mordecai is telling um, one of the eunuchs who is delivering messages back to Esther, he's telling him about the 10,000 talents of silver as if it was an important part of this arrangement, which he wouldn't have done if the king hadn't accepted the silver. And then later, whenever Esther finally gets to make her case, she says to the king, you've sold our people out. You've sold us. Uh, that's in chapter 7, verse 4, I believe. So Ahasuerus is interested in the money. He doesn't even check to see, you know, what nation Haman's wanting to do away with. He doesn't even ask specifics about violations of the law that are being accused. He just hands his signet ring over, and Haman issues the edict. And so here's the edict. Um, Slaughter the Jews on the 13th day of the first month. 
which would be April 17, 474 B.C. Here's how it is worded in Esther chapter 3, verse 13. Persian officials throughout the empire are instructed to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, um, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now, a very important detail that I mentioned in the first class on Esther is that the laws of the Medes and Persians were irrevocable. No matter how silly they were or how foolish they were in their making, once made, they couldn't be revoked. And uh, we're familiar with that from the story of Daniel when that edict was made that you can't pray for 30 days and Daniel was caught praying and he's a friend of Darius and Darius doesn't want to throw him in the lion's den, but the edict was made. Daniel, what can I do? I'm king, but I can't change this because it's the law of the Medes and Persians. So Daniel goes to the lion's den, even though the emperor didn't want it to happen. So that's very important. This is the same country where that happened, uh, Persia. And Ahasuerus has now allowed this edict to be made that can't be changed. There's a little hint of this in the first chapter when uh, a law is made about Vashti. And it's said there that no law of the Medes and Persians may be revoked. This applies to this foolish, outrageous edict for the extermination of the Jewish people. But I also want you to see the hand of God in this. Esther is famously the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. But you know God is all through this. Because just look at these events and ask yourself, could these be coincidences? First of all, a queen is displaced because she doesn't want to follow her husband's request, Vashti. Then, instead of going through the usual procedure for choosing a new queen, which is to marry one of the daughters of his seven officials, the officials suggest that he go throughout all the land and search for a bride. And then he chooses Esther, who happens to be a Jew. And she happens to have... Uh, an uncle who raised her, her adoptive father, in the king's court, who happened to be somebody who saved the king's life. And then when these men are plotting with Haman for a date on which to exterminate the Jews, it happens to be the furthest date away from the present day as you can get on the calendar. They started in the first month. This is when the edict was issued. But the date that had been chosen by the lot was in the 12th month which gives the Jews 12 months to, to prepare for this awful event. So you tell me, does that sound like coincidences? Those are some pretty amazing coincidences, if they were. And there are more that follow as we go on down the line. Now, this, of course, was a tragic thing. And we get to watch here these characters, Mordecai, Haman, Ahasuerus, uh, Esther, of course. We get to see them react to tragedy. If you ever want to see the character of somebody, watch them when they're suffering, when they're being tried, when they're going through horrible times, and you see their true nature, you see their true character. It's a test, right? So here's what we see when we look at the tragedy in this. In this we see three approaches, three examples to tragedy in this text. The first example is callous indifference. And we see this in Haman and Ahasuerus, the king, because look at the end of chapter 3, verse 15. 
they, they make the edict, and then we read that the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So they're just lounging around in the palace, congratulating one another on job well done, throwing their city into an uproar. It's thrown into a confusion. So you see there a picture of callous indifference. And sometimes that's how people react to tragedy in their neighborhoods, in their state, in their country, in the world. Uh, they just uh, they don't care. There's too much apathy in the world. And uh, empathy is lost on people. And social media is a big part of this. Uh, you know, I know I rail on social media quite a bit, but it is, it is known to be a place where there is very little empathy for one another. There's something about mediating our conversations through screens that makes us believe that we're not communicating with other human beings. But there are real people on the other end of those computers or phones or whatever you're using. And they have feelings just like you have feelings. And uh, we've become so callous as a society. And it's a picture of that callousness in Haman and Ahasuerus drinking in their palace. The second example is mournful involvement. Now this is Mordecai's example, and this is the example to follow. Look at chapter 4. Let's read a few verses here of chapter 4. See Mordecai's reaction to this edict. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So what is he doing here? We call it mournful involvement. But um, what, is, what is he doing? We see him covering himself uh, in sackcloth, which was a very uncomfortable garment, and uh, casting ashes on his head, which gives him the appearance of death. Ashes also are representative of something breaking down. So all of these are symbols of deep grief, intense grief. So the first thing is, this man is just expressing his grief, which is a really important thing to do. I've got a book in my library by Don Williams, Walking with Those Who Weep, and he says some very important things, I think, about grief and the need for it. And I think we need to hear it because many of us maybe grew up in a home where you were taught not to express your grief, not to burden people with your sorrow, not to, you know, especially men were told, real men don't cry, you know, don't. Don't be weak, but grief is a really important part of the process, and it, it's a natural thing that God gave us. It's an expression that God gave us. Uh, William says that mourning is the conscious and unconscious processes that gradually undo the psychological ties that abound you to your loved one, help you to adapt to your loss, and help you to learn how to live healthily in the new world without him or her. He says, mourning is taking the internal experience of grief and expressing it externally. 
And only when grief gives way to mourning can reconciliation takes place. He says reconciliation occurs when the griever is ready to move forward into the new reality changed by his loss. It brings with it a renewed sense of energy and confidence, an ability to fully acknowledge the reality of the loss, and the capacity to become involved with the activities of living. So it's part of the process. You you have to grieve to to deal with things like losing a spouse, losing a mother or a father, or, or you know other losses that may not be quite on that scale. Grief is a natural part of life, and we shouldn't suppress our grief as we want to do sometimes. So Mordecai, you know, it's a different culture. I don't, I'm not saying get some sackcloth and ashes, but in our cultural ways of expressing our grief, we need to do that. And um, that helps us heal and move forward. And that doesn't mean the pain ever totally goes away. It doesn't mean that you stop missing a person or totally move on and turn your back on those memories. Those stay with you. And the pain is, is always there. It becomes a part of you. But you can get on with the activities of living and move forward. And a changed person, yes, but into a new normal. That is a healthy way where happiness can come back into your life again. So that's the first thing that he's doing. Now there's more involved in Mordecai's behavior. Number two, he was probably weeping to petition God. I don't know why God's name and prayer are not specifically expressed in this book. I, I tend to believe that it was written for an audience other than Jewish people, maybe a Persian audience, and and maybe that's why the author seems to be avoiding the religious language here. But we know from other books of the Bible what people like Mordecai are doing when they're wearing sackcloth and ashes. They're praying to God. They're petitioning him for help. And it's very clear that Mordecai is the kind of person who would do that. But the third thing that he's doing, he's trying to get Esther's attention. You know, he, he and Esther have kind of a secret relationship here. And he has to be very careful about communicating with her in an open manner. He can't get to her. As she's in this harem, watched over by these eunuchs. He, he can't get to her without some kind of symbolic gesture. So he changes her, his behavior radically. And you see in verse 4, she sees him and it distresses her. And she sends clothes down there for Mordecai to put on clothes. But when she does that, she gives him a way to get a message back to her. And that's a very important part of the story. So he's mourning, but it's mournful involvement. There's a different type of mourning that's passive and not involved and not engaged. And that's not a good, good way to grieve. There's a proper way to grieve and an improper way to grieve. And we see Mordecai doing it right. The third approach to tragedy is willful ignorance. Let's look at verses 4 through 11. We already read verse 4. We see that Esther was deeply distressed and she sends garments down to her uncle so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened 
to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So Mordecai gets the message to her and she makes an excuse. You know the procedure. I can't just go in. He's my husband, sure, but this isn't a normal marriage. I can't just go in and ask him a favor. And if someone does without being summoned, they're put to death unless he holds out his scepter to show his approval of this interruption. You're asking me, Mordecai, you're asking me, Father, to risk my life. What is this? This is, and we don't want to judge Esther too harshly because she's the hero of this book, right? But at this moment, this is willful ignorance. Don't tell me this. I don't want to know this. You're putting me in a bad situation. This is the crisis point of the story. This is what makes this such a great story. She now has, she didn't ask for this, but she now has this choice between two bad options that she has to make. And what's she going to do? Well, Mordecai is going to push her a little bit. And so he carefully lays out his case for involvement. And uh, we're going to cover this and then we'll be done. Uh, Here's the case. First of all, he says, doing nothing accomplishes nothing. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. He told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Okay, I've told you not to tell anybody you're a Jew, but you are a Jew. And the edict is to exterminate all the Jews. So if you do nothing, that accomplishes absolutely nothing. We get nowhere from your inactivity. You're not helpful at all by sitting aside because you're going to die just like the rest of us. The second point that he makes, God would deliver his people with or without Esther's help. That's Mordecai's faith in the matter. Look at verse 14, the first part of it. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. So go ahead, sit aside. We're going to be delivered because God just cannot let this happen. God's not going to let his people be exterminated. No doubt Mordecai's thinking about the covenant God made with Abraham and how it was reiterated to Isaac and to Jacob that in these people, in our people, Mordecai's thinking, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed and God always keeps his promises. So we're going to be delivered. It's like Abraham's faith with Isaac. You know, God says, I'm going to make you a great nation out of the sun. Now take him up on Mount Moriah and kill him. And Abraham takes him. We learn from the book of Hebrews that Abraham's considering, well, he must be planning on raising him from the dead because God always keeps his promises. 
And so that's where Mordecai is getting this information. God is going to deliver his people one way or the other. He's either going to use you or he's going to use somebody else. But if he doesn't use you, you're going to be killed. You're not going to survive this. The third point is that maybe, Esther, you have become queen for this reason. This is the last part of chapter 4, verse 14. Probably the key verse of the book. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's speaking here of the providence of God, God's natural activity using the, the laws of nature to accomplish his purposes. No miracles in here and no certainty on Mordecai's part. He's not saying, I know for sure this is why you're queen. It's a who knows proposition. Uh, the same kind of language is used by Paul in Philemon 15 when he's writing his friend Philemon about receiving Onesimus back. Uh, there had been a master-slave relationship between Philemon and Onesimus, and Onesimus ran away. His life was in danger now because he'd run away from his master. But he had met Paul in Rome, and Paul uh, baptized him. He became a Christian like Philemon was a Christian. And so Paul's sending him back, and it's this tremendous anti-slave statement that he makes when he's saying, perhaps he was parted from you, Philemon, for a season so that you could receive him back no longer as, uh, as a slave, but as a brother beloved in the Lord. He's not, he's not your slave. He's your brother in Christ. And maybe, you see the word perhaps is used there in Philemon, where we have who knows in Esther. Perhaps this is why he ran away. Maybe this is all the Lord's will. Now, this is an apostle and one of the greatest characters of the Old Testament telling us how to look at God's activity in our lives. We can't be overconfident about something that we don't know for sure, but we can often look at events in our lives and wonder, maybe this is God's work. We'll wait and see. Who knows? Maybe God is acting to bring something special about through these bewildering circumstances. Perhaps this is why this happened. This is how people of faith talk. And this is the way Mordecai talked to, to Esther. Well, she responds by calling for three days of fasting. And here's another indication that Esther and Mordecai were relying on God. Because in the, in the Bible, fasting always went along with praying. So I believe when Mordecai put that sackcloth on and ashes, he was praying just like the other examples in the Bible. I believe when they're fasting here, they're praying the author had some reason to leave out the religious content. We don't know why. But we know the Jewish people. And so we know that's what's going on here. And uh, Mordecai's plan was dangerous, but she shows great courage. This is the climax here in verse 16. She says, if I perish, I perish. So here's the lesson for tonight. Tragedy is going to strike our lives we have to decide how we're going to react to it. Are we going to react with callous indifference? Are we going to react with willful ignorance and just try to deny it, sweep it under the rug? Or are we going to be like Mordecai and later Esther and react with mournful involvement? Yes, we grieve, but we grieve in a practical way to progress and move forward in life and do God's will. That's where we'll stop for tonight. We'll pick up with chapter 5 and see how the story winds up uh, next week.